a special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Khan and Smagula, specializing in education law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews with VIPs in the field of special education, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the districts in which we work. Two, everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has added protections, so some of which we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Ange. Hi, Abby. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. Another week has flown by. Back at it. Yep. <laughs> All right, how's everyone doing? Has school started in your guys' districts? Tomorrow uh, is the first day for kids for me. It's exciting. Okay. Yep. Tomorrow is the first day back for teachers. And I'm excited to be in my department because we've been working over the summer on such a limited number of people in the building. And, and I was going to wear, this is just a side note, everyone. I had a really cute outfit planned. And then I was walking out with someone who has been a really good mentor to me about culture. And um, he basically told me that people are super casual and wear like shorts and t-shirts, which goofs up my whole adorable outfit that I was going to wear tomorrow. <laughs> and now I'm at a dilemma of where, whether or not I should wear it and just be a little bit more dressed up or just kind of go casual. Nope. Let's the whole podcast should be about outfit of the day. So what are yes, you going to wear? What are you going to wear? Well, I was going to wear a cute sundress and you know how I have my huge flower pins. I was going to wear Great one of those. Yeah. yeah, very Carrie Bradshaw. It gives me like comfort to wear something cute like that. <laughs> and um, and now I feel like I should just wear like a t-shirt and shorts. And then they gave me a t-shirt to wear the first day of school. And it is like not my color, not super <laughs> cute, like not one that I would pick out if I had to pick out the gear. <sighs> I'm going to have to wear it the first day of school because that's what we were told. <sighs> I think think you should wear your cute outfit. Wear the cute outfit. Yeah, maybe I should because I'm not going to be able to wear it the first day of school when kids come. Yeah, and you're you're new. And uh, yeah, I I say wear the cute outfit. All right, I'll report back. Maybe I'll I'll take a picture and post it on Instagram. There you go. (laughs) Faith in you. Can I just share that today was the um, second day teachers are back and I gave like a big talk. And I was so nervous. I changed my outfit twice and I had Maeve come in and do a fit check and she approved my second outfit, which is what I wore. And I was very happy. And yeah, what, Abby, was the, it, what was that? What I'm still wearing now at 10 o'clock at night. The oh. very outfit I'm wearing. It's, That's it, nice. Thank that you. looks nice. very nice. And it makes a difference. Like when you, when you look good, you feel a little bit more confident. 
Yeah. And I always um, think you should dress like one notch better than the environment you believe you're walking into. I think that's been like a very good rule of thumb for me in my life. I got out of my PJs today. Well done. Bravo. And I worked out. So I put a bra on. Big day and big day. So a lot, a lot was happening. <laughs> well, perhaps we overshare. So let's see. Um, I did want to just note that the podcast has new music because Robin's awesome. And yeah, I want some feedback on it. I think it's great. Uh-huh. I love it. And it gets like a little louder as you go into the intro. So good job, Robin. And it is not anymore like xylophone music. So there you go. Good. Well, I'm glad you guys approve. Um, so today we are going to talk about um, 10 common logical fallacies and make some connections to how they could be used during team meetings and how you can um, address them when faced with this situation. We'll put the um, the graphic that we're working off of in the show notes. Um, and because I misuse words and sayings all the time, I have a feeling I'm going to get <laughs> yeah, kind of ribbed throughout the entire podcast and I'm ready for it. <laughs> so Abby, I, why don't you, why don't you introduce it? Okay. So, um, I certainly have been in many team meetings where sometimes I feel like the, um, people on the school side kind of revert under stress to some moves that they've seen other people do or that they've done in their personal life or they think are the right things to do that can kind of confuse the discussion. And I've seen folks who are coming to team meetings, sometimes in paid um, positions such as advocates or attorneys, um, kind of invoke different logic frames on the team meeting that are either meant to confuse the issue or meant to kind of sway the conversation in one direction or another. Um, and the classic one that comes to mind is that there is no voting in team meetings. So uh, years and years ago, we had a situation and somebody uh, came in from a private uh, firm and somehow like, I don't know, Svengali like hypnotized the whole team into voting on what they thought the um, proposal should be. And so I don't really remember now how it happened, but under stress, folks actually went around the table and all like voted like it was a jury or something. And that totally is not how our team meetings work. And uh, it's a good reminder that there are sometimes when under stress, people can become very um, malleable in their thinking. And our job is to really be clear in our thinking and to not give in to those pressures. And so we thought we'd go so through some of the common ones that you might experience in a team meeting. Yeah, I think that's right. And I often have to remind people not to vote in team meetings, like very, very often. Also in manifestation determinations, I'm constantly telling people that it's not a vote. Um, I think we're, we can go through some of these. I think that the hot um, term on Instagram is gaslighting. Oh, right. right. So that is a very common um, approach in team meetings where you get gaslit into being told that you're arguing something that you're not or that you're presenting something that you're not. And then you spend a lot of time unwinding what the person says that you're saying when you're not even saying it. I've um, totally had that happen, Ange, and it is so frustrating. And you're just like, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. 
And it takes five, 10 minutes to get back to where you thought you were. And give an example of the gaslighting. Yeah. So someone will present that uh, a student needs less service based on data. And that's so offensive to the advocate that you're proposing less service that they can't hear anything past less service. And then they, they just start saying back to you that you don't care about the child. And so that's, you're being gaslit there because like nothing you said actually talked about whether you care about the child or not. Clearly you're arguing something for the child that you think is to their benefit, but then you're being told that you don't care about the child, which is like the ultimate gaslighting because it's emotional. And mm-hmm. so that, the, 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 the teacher or the instructor has to spend time explaining why they, of course, that's not the case. And that's an emotional argument to have to be put in a position to make. And it's completely irrelevant. It's not what was being argued and it's not what was being said. And then you get derailed by that. Right. Um, And then it can also like, just to be fair, um, it can also go the other way. Sometimes team members from the school side can imply that they know better than the parent. And then the parent is being gaslit into having to defend why they are the parent. And again, it's not fair because it completely derails the conversation and wastes an enormous amount of time. And the best gaslighting, since I do it, um, is to tap into like the emotional piece. And that's extremely unfair. Um, And so those two examples are tapping into an emotional component and it's not on point for what you're trying to accomplish when you're just trying to accomplish like two times 30 speech language on an IEP, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. And I do think that happens more than you realize, right? So sometimes I think it's because as teachers, we weren't trained to be lawyers. So we don't have really a, um, like cognitive framework for argument. And in fact, we think argument is being rude and we're um, socialized to not do it. And we spend our whole day socializing children to be kind to each other. And so we're probably some of the most poorly equipped people to show up in a high pressure uh, meeting where we're trying to drive to consensus on very, very complex issues because we just don't come with a lot of tools in that tool bag. Um, that being said, you know, obviously relating to data is very, very important, but we're not robots, right? So the reality is it's all human. And so some of the things we might want to run through tonight um, can happen on either side of the table and you can be um, kind of a aggressor using it, or you can be kind of victimized by it. And I think if nothing else, the goal tonight is to just bring them to people's consciousness so that if you see one of them happening, you could say to yourself, oh, maybe I should slow down and restate what I'm trying to say, or whatever the person is saying to me, maybe that's there's some other message they're trying to send me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And let's go through the list backwards, I think. Okay. Uh, just for fun. There's 10 of them. Um, So number 10 is appeal to tradition. So this is defined as when one claims that something must be good or true because it's been practiced for a long time, i.e. that is traditionally. That is common across the board. Like that argument is a very common argument and it's made in such a way that actually there's no substance to it. Like we should do it because this is the way it's always been done. And I come across that almost every day. 
Like I came across it today where they said like, we never have service dogs in our district. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. So is that's a violation of the law, number one, but is there a practice or a policy on that? And they said like, no, well, maybe, but this is how it's always been done. And so then I get right under everyone's skin because that doesn't work, right? That's like your kid saying to you, well, everyone else is doing it. It's the same argument, right? I think that from the school side, I sometimes worry about making a decision that like sets precedence because then you can say, well, this is what we've done in the past. You know what I mean? And so that's a really an amazing point because I'm often saying that don't worry about that. That's not going to set precedence because again, it's not an argument that carries any water because of the baseline, like, like inflection point is that everything is individualized. So, so that that's often what's worried about. So that's number 10. I'm still stuck on number 10. So hold on for one second. So here's a good example of it that I um, bumped into like last week, which is the school I was visiting has, you know, like an eight day schedule. So half of eight is four. And so if a kid has something um, that isn't full-time, a class that doesn't meet full-time, it must meet four times because half of eight is four. And I was like, but what if the kid needs it only three times? We can't do that. We don't do that here. Uh, what if the kid might need it five times? Can't do that either. And I was like, um, you've reduced the world to two, two possible answers. And the world might be full of like 8 million answers. And the kid has a right to at least maybe seven answers. And uh, it was really challenging. And I, I think everyone was very well-intentioned in the moment, but you just totally were like, holy cow, your answer is eight or your answer is four. Yeah, that's Thank a really good example. Right? And we do that to people and we get that from people sometimes too. Yeah. Um, all right. So number nine is a, a, a red herring. So that is defined as this occurs when someone deliberately attempts to move the issue under discussion to a new irrelevant topic. And the response to that is that's a red herring, right? So the legal term for that is like a frolic or a detour. Like you're just going off on a different on a different path in order to make a point that actually is derailing what you were originally talking about. Um, so that's like in my toolbox. I use that <laughs> quite a bit, not to like derail the conversation, but I usually call it out as that thing, like that's a red herring. And it's interesting. A lot of these are used internally when I'm giving advice to clients because they're trying to present whatever they think is their best argument. And sometimes some of these things when pressure tested, don't, don't actually carry a lot of water. Yep. I think a helpful tool to try to avoid this is to have an agenda when you're having meetings. And then when someone brings up a topic that is not related, you have at least some sort of visual or format to go back to, to say, thank you for that. Let's put it in the parking lot. Try to get through the agenda that the district developed to get through this IEP meeting, whatever the actual topic is. And then perhaps you have time to revisit it, or you can suggest that you schedule a different meeting. I think the only thing that I would now change that I'm saying is to make sure when you have your agenda, you review it in the beginning and ask the family, like, is there anything else that you would want to add? So it's not just the district driving the meeting, but when faced with a bomb in the middle of the meeting, you can certainly 
redirect them back to the agenda and say like, no, not now. I think that's like, first of all, really smart. And second of all, like I've seen you utilize an agenda like no one else in terms of trying to keep people on the agenda, because there's always topics, especially in a contentious team meeting, like you're discussing something specific probably. And there's a thousand other things you could be talking about. Some of them might be relevant. And so not arguably a red herring, but it is a red herring, even if it is relevant, if it's not part of what this conversation is about. So I'm wondering, Angela, would a red herring be, I've had this experience where I'm meeting on a student, maybe in middle or high school, um, and there was an egregious incident that had happened like back in first or second grade. And we are going through the meeting and we're talking about things that are happening in the now times, but it becomes stressful. And then what gets introduced is this incident from like seven years earlier. That is a very good example of a red red herring. That is. Okay. That's a a really good example. And I've done it like a couple of times where I've been like taken by surprise and I want to go back in the time machine and readdress that issue. Why, why we were right, you know, in 1993. And it's so important to say like, oh no, the answer to that is you have an agenda. We all mutually agreed on the agenda. We'll put it in the parking lot. Like the, the herring can stay alive. It can just go on the parking lot. And when, and if we have time, we can revisit I agree. But not right now because it's not relevant and it's detracting from our our obligation to get through this conversation. So calling something a red herring is also a little pejorative. Okay. You have to be careful to not use it, but like understand that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So number eight is a hasty generalization, Mm -hmm. um, which I think, which is defined here as this logical fallacy happens when a general conclusion is drawn based on a sample size that is too small. So we'll often receive hasty generalizations because we say that Susie gets this, so obviously Tommy should get it, right? And that's a hasty generalization just based on one sample size. Or we know that everybody does X, hasty generalization slash appeal to tradition, (laughs) right? And so we want to make a broad conclusion that this is the right way to go even though it's based on something that A, might not be relevant, or B, just be too small. Um, I think we can also see this with like utilizing a certain um, methodology, right? Um, And that can be like an example of a hasty generalization because like the methodology has been successful with one person. I see that with certain advocates who look at um, certain reading programs or certain math programs, and they have had success in one situation. And so now every time they come to a meeting, they're like, let's use whatever. And so then the district is in the position of having to defend why they're not using that methodology for that student. And half the time, it's not even appropriate. So you're using like a methodology for kids with reading disabilities for a kid with an intellectual disability in the same way. So I I think that, and that can certainly derail the meeting because the family generally wants a program and wants something research-based to call upon and then trust the advocate and then feels distrustful for the school because you're making some sort of defensive excuse not to use it. Yeah. And the advocate piece of it is inherently a small sample size, right? So you could say the same of lawyers too. Like we have this experience across the board, but the board is not that long, right? It's only the number of clients that we have, right? 
So that like inherently the sample size is too small if you're pitching a certain program that you think has worked before for three of your clients and it must work for the fourth client without actually sort of digging into what's actually happening. I was thinking too, I've I've experienced something like this where somebody will say to me in passing like, well, that school has a bullying problem. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, what is that? And it's because um, that person experienced a bullying situation or their friend did, or they've heard from three people that they have, but there's 824 children in the building over 10 years. That's, you know, 8,000 kids have gone through the building. And so I, I never want to minimize those kind of things because for that one person, it is hundred percent real, but I feel like that comment can get out there. And then a whole building can get like a reputation in the community that may be based on what we're talking about from a small sample size. And it's very, it's really hard because I think staff, sometimes we buy into it too. And then it like is self-perpetuating on the, on the building. We experienced that in our form, one of our former districts where schools have reputations for being good at one thing and not good at another. And those kids shouldn't go there because they don't have a good track record with this. And again, Abby, you're, you're spot on to say that the, the sample size is so small that oftentimes it's not fair to make that generalization. But right. it's also real for that person who's saying it. At of first. And that's like this weird confusion for, I think, people in team meetings because we don't want to be rude and discount a person's individual experience. But I think sometimes we feel called to also sometimes try to rebut something that we don't really have the tools to unpack. How would you respond to that? Would you then flip it back to like the individual experience? Yeah, probably. And I would say, tell me more about what happened for you. It sounds really troubling. And I'd like to understand more about that. I really can't comment on the whole school. That's probably um, beyond the scope of this conversation. And I don't know if that's accurate for every kid that's been there. And most people are really thoughtful and they'll be like, no, that's true. But, you know, for my kid, it was real. Yep. I'm with you on that. Yep. So I don't know. I think it's kind of shaping that conversation towards a less broad generalization, maybe. Yeah. And if you look at the definition, it says it's a logical fallacy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It makes sense to the person. Yep. So it is, it's not an illogical, it's not like cuckoo nuts. No one's lying, right? That person, the school does feel like everyone's bullied for that person, right? Um, All right. So number seven is a false dilemma. Mm. This occurs when two choices are presented as the only possible options when in fact other alternatives exist. So that's a fancy name to stuff we deal with all the time, like a false dilemma, right? Because we're proposing programs, they're proposing programs, like they're insisting on only A or B, or we're insisting on only A or B when there's actually other letters of the alphabet. So that's one, that one's pretty straightforward. And I do think we were just chatting about this, that, you know, schools perpetuate that sometimes when we set up these false dichotomies, right? Like, um, if you want to get X, you have to give up Y. And sometimes that's real and that is logical. And sometimes that's not real and is illogical. And so it's like having the courage to say, like, let's take a time out right here and just evaluate what we're really trying to do for this particular kid. And sometimes giving up, you know, whatever world language or whatever. I was just going to say, you see it's this in fine. scheduling, you see this in yeah, scheduling a lot. A lot. Yeah. And it's like a false dichotomy. But yeah. um. Yes, but again, like from the high school's perspective, there's only so many blocks. And many times you can get to the end result 
looking at the four-year plan rather than a year one plan. And that doesn't always feel good to parents because you say like, we can do all of this, but you can't have your elective until you're a sophomore. And that feels kind of shitty to people. But But that's a good idea to approach it because sometimes like you're looking at only two options, but you need to look at the, the, the landscape of four years. Right. That's right. Think that's a good I mean, way to kind of. Oftentimes things fit in. You just can't fit it in all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Robin, that's spoken like a person who has marched hundreds of kids through graduation, which not a lot of people can say they've done. And the reality is it's really an eight semester plan. And we all probably have to get better at articulating like the long plan for folks in a way that builds some confidence, because if they right, no kid has the same transcript, not one single high schooler has the same exact transcript probably as another high schooler. And that's normal and typical and not discriminatory. But somehow we never are able to articulate that well enough that people can like trust that it will flow through. And so there's a lot of work to do on that. But kids get to the end game, which is a diploma, right? And a transcript that gets them where they want to go next. Yeah, that's really interesting. The next one is six appeal to ignorance, which is defined as when it is said that an argument must be true if it cannot be proven false Hmm. or false if it cannot be proven true. So this is just like our politics right now. Yep. that We don't really have to talk about it any more than that one. Like that (laughs) is our politics, right? When an argument must be true, if it cannot be proven false, like, so, so no science or false, if it cannot be proven true. So you appeal to the lowest common denominator, right? That's another way to put it. And so it's just like not a great strategy for actually trying to be productive in any way. Um, All right. So number five is um, bandwagon, which I think we all know about which is the bandwagon fallacy occurs when something is said to be true or good simply because it's popular, right? Oh my God. This is like all of American public education. Yep. Right. Oh, this one kind of drives me crazy because this is where fads come in. And this is where, you know, you, you hear something that happened or someone gets publicity about something and now everyone wants it. And you're like, Where's the research on that? Right. Jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah. Um, And so the way that we we counteract that is data. Yeah. In our setting. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, we've spoken about this in the past, where how do we handle situations where parents bring something up or something comes up in a team meeting for a request of something that is outside of what we would normally consider and think about as like a typical request. A couple ones that come to mind are over the years, I've had folks request um, particular methodologies and I've said, gee, I'm not um, as familiar with that. And I'd love to know more. Can you send me some information about it? And sometimes people will do a really good job. They'll send me like a journal article or they'll send me the website of something and I'll genuinely stop what I'm doing and look at it. And sometimes we write back and say like, that seems like a viable um, option. And if that's what you're looking for, you know, we can join with you. And sometimes we'll say like, hey, I I looked at the journal and all the people who are on the masthead of the journal are the same people writing the articles. It appears to be like a field of 10 people who are kind of self-perpetuating or there doesn't appear to be research. It appears to be kind of an anecdotal 
um, you know, research base that's really about um, people's personal kind of narrative. And those things are great, but I don't know that we can join with you on that. And we respectfully decline. And that's like an interesting way to think about those topics. And I, I do think we're in the middle of another kind of pendulum swing of some of that with literacy right now. And we're seeing kind of marketplaces spring up of new programming and new named things um, in light of some of the larger issues in the field. And so people have to be tuned in for this because there are probably really good versions of that and also somewhat shady uh, versions of that. Yep. All right, we're, we're zeroing in. Number four is slippery slope. So oh, the slippery slope. This is defined as taking an argument from the first sensible premise to an undesirable or extreme conclusion via a number of hastily connected steps. Mm-hmm. So the point I want to make is that slippery slope can can be argued in a way that it, there's not a slippery slope, but someone says, oh no, we can't do this because it's going to be a slippery slope, right? Yeah. So that's how I, I actually see that, you know, more often utilized as a defense mechanism. Like, oh, we can't do that. It's like mm-hmm. the precedent argument that Robin was saying. We can't do that because that's like a slippery slope. And it's like, not really. It's not really a slippery slope when you look at what the definition is. Um, but I think that's a common one on on both sides of the coin. Absolutely. I can remember 100 years ago, having a kid who wanted to go to some kind of like honors class in middle school and the student had on their IEP, like they can have a word bank on tests. And so I go up to the honors teacher and I'm like, oh, this kid's ready to kind of do this. And the person's like, well, they can't have a word bank in my class. And I was like, but why not? And they're like, because it's slippery slope. If you need a word bank, then you don't really know the vocabulary. If you don't know the vocabulary, you haven't learned the, the information and then you can't be in my level. And I was like, what? Hold on. The person has like a memory issue. Stop. The person's always had a word bank. The person can use the word bank to answer your really hard questions. And um, what are you talking about? But it was like instantaneous. And it happened within like eight milliseconds. The person just like Socratic seminared me like right off the slippery slope. And I like remember leaving the room as the administrator being like, what the hell just happened to me? And it got to the grade place, right? The the, the mythology that if there was a word bank, the grade police would come and pull our school's charter to have this class. I mean, it got a little delusional at the end, but on the way, it made sense to me. And I was kind of going along with them until I realized that I had been like diluted, probably gaslit by the slippery slope. And I was like, what the heck? So yeah, so that's like a perfect example of of using the slippery slope in a way that's like not right. It's to defend against this kid coming into the class who this person perceives isn't ready yeah. Except that with a word bank, the kid would be totally functional. You guys have given like such good examples of every. It happens to us all the time. Okay, I mean, I mean, oh like we should really tell the listeners that like we didn't pre-plan any of these answers, <laughs> and they're all really good. Because it happens to them too. They're probably like driving to work, being like, "Jesus Christ, this is terrible. This happens to me all the time." Sorry. Um, all right. So number three is appeal to authority. So that is defined as asserting that something must be true because it's backed up by someone who is allegedly an authority on the subject. This reminds me of people that sit in meetings and say, like, I am a doctorate in blah, blah, blah. And I know or I have studied this extensively. And so I know. Um, 
and you sometimes have a really hard time responding because they sound like they have a really big title and have done a lot of things in that field. And so maybe they are the expert, but the idea is that you can be an expert in something and you can not be an expert in that child. And, you know, you need to marry what you know about whatever it is with the individual needs of the child and come up with a decision that, that meets both. But that whole idea of like, I am the expert. And so I'm the only person that can have a voice in the team meeting is something that I've certainly sat across from. Yeah. And I get this all the time, um, which is because so much of my practice is I, I need to base it on real authority, but I will often get lawyers, um, not even, not necessarily in the special ed arena, but in the school arena where they say like, uh, that's a violation in writing. They'll write like, that's a violation of federal law, capital F, capital L. And I'm like, could you be fucking more specific? Like federal law is big. Like you can't just say this is a violation of federal law and then leave it at that. Like I will often say to clients, like when they receive those letters, ask them what federal law are they speaking of? Like we don't have to go research all of federal law to guess what the appeal to authority is. Like, so that is a sort of, I think a good example of like, sort of saying I'm an authority on federal law. <laughs> that's a that's like saying I'm an authority on bread. There's lots of types of <laughs> bread. <laughs> that's a good example, Ange, about the federal law. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, it happens to me a lot. It actually kind of enrages me a little bit. I've got one more. Okay. For that one. So I've had this over the years where people will say, um, if you don't do what I want you to do, I will, you know, call the State Department of Ed. And I, in the beginning, I was like, oh, no, I, perhaps I've done something wrong. And then I'm like, I haven't done anything wrong. I just show up every day and try my best. And so do all the people in our school. And if we have a technical question that we need to sort out, we should sort the answer out and do what's right. But over the years, what I've developed is this like response where I say, like, hold on, I have the name of our person. Let me get it for you. Give it to the person. I say, like, so when you call, you should ask for this person because they're attached to our town and they're going to help us sort this out together. So this idea of not being um, instantly in a defensive posture. And then sometimes I've had people say, like, this is a law. And I would say, can you send it to me? I really want to follow the law. Like, please send it to me so I can read it, too. And then more often than not, the person will say, well, it's not really a law. It's more of like a courtesy or it's more of like a way we do things. And I was like, oh, but that's different than a law. So that's a different conversation. And both of those things, I feel like come with experience, but also you don't want to make anyone feel defensive back. And so it's hard to do some of those things and not make it worse. But over the years, I've tried really hard to like deflate that one, that appeal to authority and save it for when you really need it. No, and that's actually a, a, another appeal to authority example, which is often what we'll get, which is unless you do X, I'm going to file with Desi, as if that in that statement makes what they're arguing true, because oh, they, they wouldn't otherwise file unless it must be true. But that's not the case. Like, so whenever anyone says that to me, and often I'll get like, well, you can call my lawyer, or if you don't do X, we're going to get a lawyer, or we're going to file. I'm always like, awesome. Like I'm I'm happy to have someone else weigh in because you saying that doesn't make me think any less of what my argument is, right? So I'm always like, shine a light on it. Have a third party weigh in. 
sometimes in special ed is so like fluid and current and fast and changing. I'm often like, this is what I think is the argument, but let someone tell me I'm wrong. But don't just say because I'm appealing to an authority that I'm wrong, right? Yep. So so last two. So two is a straw man, which is defined as when someone attacks a distorted version of the original argument that they themselves created, i.e. the straw man. So I'm trying to think of a good example of that in like a team meeting. But the idea of a straw man is that I say the sky is blue. And then someone says back to me, I can't believe you think the sky is white. And I'm like, no, no, no. I said the sky is is blue. And they're like, your position that the sky is white is crazy. And so that's like a straw man. They're distorting my argument and saying something different and then saying I'm wrong. It's similar to gaslighting, actually. Right. I feel like I've come across this when parents are looking to reduce services for some reason, but then still want like the full protections of everything at the same time. So they're Mm. making like an argument that the child doesn't need something, but then also really needs it, but just not in the same way that they have it. Is that the same thing that you're talking about? That works. I think that works. For example, we've had, we've had parents who have like wanted to pull their kids out of like a therapeutic program because of maybe like a stigma or a social issue. And so they are making the argument that the child is, is gained all of these skills. And then at the same time, they want them to have like X, Y, and Z because they have all of this like mental health needs at the same time. So they're yeah. kind of like arguing themselves. Yep. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. Abby, do you have anything on straw man? I'm trying to think of some discipline cases that we've had where we've been in a hearing or something. And it seems to me like the closer you get to legalistic um, or criminal matters or like serious, serious like outcomes, people rely on some of these things more because the stakes are so much higher emotionally and, and for real life. And so I've been in a couple of meetings where we've offered a program and they'd say something like, I don't want my kid to go there. I don't, they're not like those people. Or they're not like those kids. And it feels like a straw man that like this, this bias or unstated explanation of who those kids are is somehow taking over the conversation, but what their kid really needs. And, and it's maybe it's a little bit like that, but also at the same time, it's a hard moment for a family to say like, my kid might actually be like some other people that I've passed a negative judgment on in my life. I remember we had a student who got accepted to a very, very prestigious VOC program. And I remember the um, parents saying, like, I don't want them to hang out with those kids in the VOC program. And I remember thinking in my head, like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for your kid to have like an amazing skill and they won't be able to enter it as a junior or senior. You have like a year to enter it. This is the year. But they weren't quite ready yet to acknowledge that. And because of that, they passed on like an opportunity that was probably like the best of the opportunities. And I still feel terrible about that, but I didn't have the skills to like stop at that moment and be like, hold on. I think we're mixing up two things at the same time. Let's try. So I think that that idea of like the peers being the wrong set of peers in a therapeutic program, for example, 
is a good one because when you look at the definition again, it's a distorted version of the original argument. So yeah. like the original argument is like your kid has these needs yeah. and belongs in a therapeutic placement. And the distorted version of our argument is like, you think my kid's a criminal because right. all that right. program is a criminal. And then you, then you're ending up, then you lose, you lose traction of what the original piece was. It's almost impossible. Yeah. 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 So it's like they want their child's needs to be met, but not with, you know, that population or that program because their kid doesn't meet that criteria, even though they do. And that's like, that's the distorted version of the original argument, right? Right. Like that. Have you seen that, Robin, with people, with kids who um, have more visual disabilities than maybe someone else's kid? And they'll say like, I don't want my kid with that program. Yes. Oh that my is. God, would benefit from so many of the pieces. And I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. Yes, pain, that's like a painful conversation to be in. Yep. All right. So we're at number one, the last one, which is Latin. And I always like to throw in some Latin just to seem smarter than I am. So this one is called ad hominem. It's like an ad hominem attack. That's defined as this occurs when someone attacks directly the person making the argument rather than criticizing the argument itself. That's a classic argument strategy that's done when you feel like you're losing the argument, right? <laughs> you attack the person instead of the argument. Or if you don't have a good def- good breakdown of what's being argued to you, you argue what the person is saying it as opposed to what is actually the argument. So I think we've seen that on both sides of the table in a team meeting. And that's where you veer into these emotional component pieces that are not productive for what's trying to be accomplished. So the way that Abby and I have seen this like many, many times is we have parents, angry parents, maybe in a, in a meeting where they say to Abby, I pay your salary. Correct. You work for me. You work for me because you're a public school employee, which again is attacking the person and trying to diminish that person um, and has nothing to do with what is actually being presented. Right. Yeah. So that's it. So it's an ad hominem attack is basically a fancy way of saying like you're being an asshole. Right. Like if you're making an ad hominem attack, you're being an asshole. Right. Right. And over the years, I've learned to say, you're right. I do work for you. And I take my job super seriously. And I believe in our proposal. Thank you for reminding me how important that is. Right. The other way is that schools do that. So I think we need to be honest and be upfront and say there are times when an advocate or attorney comes to the table and we have a predetermined sense that we think that person's there to attack the program and they are not. They're there to improve the program. They're there to provide insight. They're there to help the family say what they want to say. And I've worked hard over the years to hear that. And there are times that I'm sure I have been attacky and I, you know, regret that. Right. And sometimes we see mistakes being made by districts that are extremely frustrated with the parent. Right. Which is so unfortunate because it's so hard to get over that. And then you'll see people go off the deep end and, Mm -hmm. and make it about the parent. And that is also an ad hominem attack, right? Right. I mean, you could argue that that happens with kids too. Kids have reputations and they're described as obstinate. They cut class. They're rude. They're always vaping. They're this, they're that. And you're like, and they still deserve X, Y, and Z. And you're making an argument 
Robin, as to why someone who's been severely disciplined still should have access to something. And they're saying that's a terrible kid, right? So that's an ad, that's another great example of an ad hominem attack. Um, Maybe that's why it was number one and we just went backwards. Maybe that's why they started because there were so many good examples. Yeah, but um, I don't feel like you should be criticizing my 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 decision to go backwards on the list. I wasn't criticizing, actually. I feel like that's an ad hominem. I think you must be. <laughs> I was just pointing out. I, I, you know, I think we gave the listeners an expectation that I was going to rip on you mercilessly and it didn't happen at all. I know. I think you were surprised that I came up with really um, good examples. <laughs> I don't think I made any strange mixed up. No, I think what your you issue think? is that you oh have, you're like the queen of malapropisms. That's <laughs> your, in like two podcasts from now, you might use one of these in a wrong way, talking about like, sports or driving a ship or something. And that will be a malapropism. That is um, me. When we look at these, they are so interesting and we could talk about them forever, but like you, you guys were able to come up with such like uh, robust and real world examples. And so that just goes to show you that 10 common logical fallacies is like, they are common because <laughs> we were able to come up with several examples for all of them. Yeah. Well, and under stress, I think they come out more, right? They're things that we somehow unconsciously like default. They're to like defense I, mechanisms. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also say 10 common defense yeah. mechanisms that everyone should know about. Right. Well, it would be interesting for the listeners to go through them and see one, if they can come up with examples and then also in preparation of a meeting on the flip side, come up with ways to diffuse the situations um, if they're faced with someone on the other side of the table pulling one of these moves on them. Yeah. I mean, also, and like you, you'll, you'll find this with your own group of teachers and administrators, like having to figure out like what's being said and why it's being said and trying to diffuse them. And i I do that with my clients and like, we could go through this list of 10 and apply it to every teenager argument we've ever received. I mean, <laughs> that's why they're, you know, common logical fallacies, because these are the arguments that people make when they're having a losing argument or they're under stress or they're trying to defend something that they've done or trying to defend something that they want to do, right? It's all, we could do this list and just talk about our own teenagers or kids. I was just going to say, I I feel so badly for both of your two teenager kids having to try to argue with the two of you. Don't feel too bad because they like, <laughs> they argue back pretty damn well. <laughs> <laughs> And if nothing else, this gives us a good reminder that it's like equal opportunity around the table, right? Like this is like a human trait. So the teacher, like the sweetest preschool teacher in America can do this as well as the toughest advocate coming in or the most worried parent. Like it's like genuinely a human thing. And um, I guess, you know, the goal is to be self-reflective enough to know when it's starting to happen and and interrupt it, right? Yep. Yeah, That's for everybody. That's yeah. that's a really good way to end it, as usual. I was just going to say, Abby, you are fine. Like, puts a fucking bow right on it. So yeah, good. Gaslight me. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen, um, I hope everyone has a great week. We will be back uh, next week. And um, thanks for listening. Good night. Bye. Good night, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe. 
share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.